It's good to see all of you here today. Happy Father's Day. Um, <clears throat> I am Joe. I'm uh, normally sitting in the uh, seats where you are or I'm back there with the kids. But today I am the guest uh, speaker and um, it's going to be an interesting topic. So you've chosen a very interesting Sunday to come. Um, and our passage today is 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. Uh, so we're going to start just by reading that. So Paul writes, quoting the Corinthians, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will also raise us. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Don't you know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is said, the two shall be one flesh. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside their body, but the one who commits sexual immorality sins against their own body. Or don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Let's pray. O oh Lord, open our hearts. Open our minds, speak to us, and let us hear your voice, for it's no other word that we need to hear. It's no other voice we need to hear. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. So um, Chris asked me to preach a few weeks ago, and I knew I was going to be busy, so I employed a classic tactic. It is known as the propose a squeamish topic move which is likely to get the pastor to say, never mind, I'll just t let you off the hook and I'll do that myself another time. So I said, Chris, I'll do it, as long as I can talk about sex. <laughs> and um, Chris is not one who is easy to make squeamish. He is quite brave, he called my bluff. <laughs> and so I am here, stuck, talking to all of you about sex. And um, this is quite different from my normal role on Sunday mornings, because usually I'm back there with the two to five-year-olds. <laughs> and for some reason, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20 has not come up in that curriculum. Uh, maybe Meg and I will get together and submit something to the Godly Play curriculum, and they'll bring something back to us after today. I, I doubt it, though. Um, and, I mean, obviously, there's a certain level of appropriateness to that. I mean, I don't recall encountering this passage until probably at least middle school, high school. And the first time I really got to sink my teeth into it was when I was in college. I was in a class on 1 Corinthians where everybody had to represent a different commentator, a different scholar or ancient or modern who had written on the text. And I remember we went through the text verse by verse, and then we got to 1 Corinthians 6.13, where Paul says, the body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now, the first half of that verse was pretty clear what it meant. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. As Paul goes on himself in the passage to explain, 
He says, look, don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. He's saying, look, this isn't your property. You don't get to do with your body just willy-nilly as you will. He lists right before this passage all these different sorts of sexual sins that people had committed. And he said, look, maybe you used to do whatever you wanted to do with your body. Maybe you ran around and did that stuff. But you don't anymore. Why? Because you were washed. You were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. So it wasn't too hard to understand that first half of the verse. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. But then I remember we got to the second half where Paul says, not just the body is for the Lord, and then he says, the Lord is for the body. And I remember we all just sat around and thought, yeah, I got nothing. What, what does this mean? And although we had like 20 commentators in the room, I don't remember anybody giving a plausible explanation of what this might mean. Uh, I remember one person said, well, if you look at the beginning of verse 13, the very beginning, Paul's quoting this phrase from the Corinthians where he says, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, X for Y and Y for X. So there's this symmetry, this rhetorical symmetry, and maybe Paul just really liked that. So he just sort of got really excited and just kept writing so that he was like, the body for the Lord, and oh yeah, the Lord for the body. But by the time he got to the end of the verse, he wasn't really thinking anymore, so we just sort of are supposed to drop that. And I thought, well, that's, that's stupid. Like, I don't need a PhD writing a commentary to say like, oh, well, maybe they don't know what, that's easy. Like, that's, that's too easy, and I thought, well, that's really disappointing. And I walked out of that class thinking, well, I don't know what this means, but I hope there's something better than that. Um, but I didn't have any idea, really, what to say about it or what to think it meant. And it wasn't for a few years, I felt, that I actually started to get some insight as to what that verse might mean. And it wasn't from reading a commentary. It was actually from lived Christian experience. Now, as anybody who's lived as an unmarried uh, Christian for more than 10 minutes knows, just because you're single, just because you're Christian, and just because you're called to live celibately does not mean that feelings and longings for physical intimacy don't arise. I know this from my own, my own life, from testimony of friends. And yet I knew at one of those moments when those feelings arose within me, I said to the Lord, Lord, my body isn't my own. I can't do whatever I want with my body to satisfy these longings. So Lord, you touch me. You fill me. And it was like an experience like being like a cup being filled from the bottom to the top. The Lord touching the root of those desires so that even they came to the, to the surface of my flesh and even the longings of the flesh were not these unsatisfied yearnings with which I was left hanging anymore. And then I thought, well, how is this possible? How do you understand this? It's like, well, if you think about the nature of these desires, the desire for touch, for this physical intimacy, it's never just this isolated desire for touch. Because a touch can be a good thing or a bad thing. It could be a sign of love or of something else. These desires for touch are always tied to desires for love, to be known that you're accepted, to be known that somebody wants you, just simply to be known. And it was the roots of those desires that go down so much more deeply than the surface of my flesh that the Lord somehow touched and satisfied. And I mean, I think this is really important, not just for single Christians, but especially for single Christians to think about that 
God can satisfy even the longings of the flesh. I mean, in my experience growing up, I don't remember ever being told that in quite that way. Or maybe if I was, I'd forgotten it. Or I mean, maybe some of my Christian friends were, but they didn't really experience that in their lives, and so they lost hope that that was possible. And uh, I mean, can you blame us for not really having that in the forefront of our minds? We're like surrounded on all sides by a bunch of broken messages, both in and outside the church. So you think about like any song by Taylor Swift that's about love, or um, this beautiful song Without You by uh, Usher and David Guetta, or like, you know, any movie, any sitcom, like this is a component, the com there's a component to all these songs, to all these movies, to all these shows where it's like, you're this puzzle piece, it's gonna be hard with the microphone, and you're just looking for this other puzzle piece, this other person who when you find them, you're gonna fit perfectly together and all those longings of your flesh are finally going to be exhaustively satisfied. And this isn't something that's just outside the church. Um, I've talked to a lot of friends in singles ministries and it seems like that same sort of story has poured over into even singles ministries in churches. Like, oh, well, these single people, they are in boot camp for self-control right now. They better just stuff them, but we gotta help them along and find that other puzzle piece for them so that they can finally stop being miserable and just deal with those feelings in the context of marriage. So ultimately, what happens when the approach is, is that way, it's like, Okay, for now, we know you got them, just stuff the feelings, repress them, forget them. But what we forget to say to people and what we sometimes don't say to people is like, look, you're not left hanging. You're not left waiting for joy. You can bring these feelings to God and actually have them satisfied. And it's, again, not just something that's relevant for single Christians. I mean, this is something that's just as relevant for married Christians to get. I've talked to plenty of married Christian friends who said, yeah, you know what? Like, we've been married. We have wonderful intimacy in all different ways in our relationship. But it's just a fact that no matter how great and how healthy and wholesome your relationship with your spouse is, they ultimately are not going to be able to satisfy those longings exhaustively. And as Christians, this shouldn't be a surprise because we were created with those desires to go down so deep that no human being can touch you as deep down as you need to be touched. It's God alone whose hand reaches down far enough that he can actually satisfy those longings. And the problem is when we forget that, what happens in marriage is the spouse becomes an idol. The spouse starts to become someone you put in the place to do what only God can and is supposed to do. And then it creates an undue burden on the relationship. So you feel maybe, well, my spouse isn't giving me what I want, so how are we going to get to the new heights of the feelings that I'm looking for? Well, again, from testimony of married friends, what happens is occasionally that one spouse will say, well, let's incorporate X, Y, or Z, but the other spouse is not necessarily comfortable with X, Y, or Z. And then that very space in which physical intimacy was supposed to exist and foster greater communion between the couple actually ends up being the very spot where it starts to break the intimacy down. Or instead of going to the spouse and saying, well, let's learn together and, and try whatever, instead one spouse 
or both spouses give up and in some sense abandon the other. So one way that this happens not infrequently is pornography. Or another way is just leaving the spouse altogether and just finding someone else. Because the idea is I must find that creature who is going to be able to satisfy those longings of my flesh. That's not the way we were created. So what does a healthy Christian marriage look like? This is my own limited insight from non-married perspective. But we're, when a married couple in a context of a Christian marriage approaches each other, the idea is not that they're approaching each other from a standpoint of scarcity or lack, where you're just trying to like get everything possible that you can get out of the spouse, like scraping the bottom of the barrel just to get out anything you possibly can. Rather, you're coming to each other out of a space of abundance. Because even if you're married, you're still supposed to go to God to get those longings satisfied by him. So that now when you come to each other within physical intimacy, what happens is you are now able to give to each other from the abundance that God has given you. And obviously there are a ton of destructive ways that things can go wrong for single or for married Christians. But I think one of the most destructive, most common ways, one thing that we need to talk about, is pornography. So um, I've been reading a lot of articles this year by non-Christians who have been studying the effects of pornography on people. The Duke student newspaper actually had a piece uh, where a sociologist was studying the use of pornography among teenage males. And he estimated that 89.1% of teenage males are active consumers of pornography. 89.1, that's like nine in 10. With numbers like that, you know they're not, that's not a problem that's outside the church. And then there was this piece in the New York Times, uh, and it was about a guy who was not a Christian, but he realized how pornography was destroying his life. He was losing days and days of his life because of his addiction. And it got to the point that it wasn't just a matter of the time he was losing, but it was also affecting his relationship with his girlfriend because he said he could not actually have sex with his girlfriend unless he imagined the pornographic images that he had beheld. And so that's a very powerful illustration of the fact that the human body was not actually designed for pornography. It rewired this guy's whole physiological being so that he couldn't actually engage in sexual activity. Now, that's just from you know, non-Christians I've been reading about. There are a bunch of other things they studied about the way pornography weakens fidelity in relationships, makes cheating a lot more likely. And um, sorry, that was just a bubble floating past my face. Um, but I've talked to, not ju- I've looked into not, uh, this issue not just with uh, non-Christians and articles in the newspaper, I've also talked to my Christian friends and asked them, like, what is this like for you? And some of my friends who have struggled with this have said, their desire for pornography is rarely just about lust. Often it's about a desire for intimacy. But just like so many other evil things, the very thing that pornography promises you is what it also destroys. Because 
when that person is on the page or on the screen, that person is flattened out so that you can't fully be part of their story at that time. You can't fully be part of their life at that moment. But it doesn't just flatten out the person on the screen. It also flattens out the watcher. Because just like you can't participate in that person's life fully at that moment, similarly, they cannot participate in yours. And so the very thing, the semblance of intimacy that this stuff offers is destroyed. Now, there were two just beautiful quotes that I thought helped illustrate this point. There was one by Karl Barth who said that coitus without communion is demonic or sexual activity without communion between the two people is a demonic activity. And then Pope John Paul II, he said, the problem with pornography is that it doesn't show enough of a person. And then I'm reminded of Jeremiah 2.13, where God says, this is the sin of my people. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and instead they've gone to dig out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. When people are going to pornography for intimacy, it's not that they're seeking something bad, it's just that they're going to the wrong source to find it. It's like digging out a broken cistern that cannot carry any water, that cannot quench your thirst. And God is saying to us, why do you go to what cannot satisfy? Why do you go to what cannot quench your thirst but will only leave you drier? Instead, come to me, come to me, and I will fulfill even the longings of your flesh. And I don't know um, whether this is something we've forgotten, but there are hints that this isn't something that has been foreign to people who have lived with God. If you look in the Psalms, there, there are hints of this. In Psalm 84, David says, my heart and my flesh cry out for, the, for God, the living God. Or in Psalm 63, he writes, my soul thirsts for God, my flesh faints for God. And it might be a problem that's especially palpable in modern Protestant Christianity because we don't have the same sort of space that earlier forms of Christianity had for singleness and celibacy. Like one of the things that was distinctive about Christianity from the beginning was it had a vibrant culture of singleness and celibacy. And it wasn't because, and this thing lasted for thousands of years as, as something that was, if not the norm, just a very prominent part of the church. And it really sort of um, became less prominent as the Protestant Reformation got underway. And how did it last for like thousands of years as a prominent part of the church though? How do you think those people made it through? It was not because they didn't have those desires. It was rather because there was a whole culture that understood these desires can actually foster deeper communion with God. And I think it might be helpful to think of another Christian practice to understand this point. We think about fasting. Now, fasting is um, also tied to another longing of the flesh, the longing for food. But as we know, the longing for food is rarely just about a longing for nourishment. We're all familiar with the phenomenon of emotional eating. So when we are angry, when we are stressed, when we're upset, we go to food because there's something about food that satisfies us deeper than just the nourishment 
uh, that's part of it. We're looking for comfort for our souls from this stuff. And the reason why fasting is so powerful is because it's saying, Lord, I might normally go to these other sources to satisfy those longings, but I'm going to not go to those things. And I'm going to open up a space here and now so that you satisfy those longings, so that you give that comfort that I'm seeking. And so today, as we close, just want to offer an invitation. Say that maybe, I don't know how you've dealt with those feelings. Maybe you've stuffed them. Maybe you've tried to forget about them. Maybe you've indulged them um, in ways that you should not have or that we all should not have. Um, and I want to say, no longer stuff them. No longer forget about them. But bring them out into the open before God and have hope that he is the one who can and will fill them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we live in the midst of a culture with so many broken messages about our bodies, about sex, and about you. We pray that you would give us hope that you are the one who can and will fill those longings and satisfy us. We pray that we will return to the fount of living water and not dig out cisterns for ourselves that cannot hold any water. We open ourselves to you today and say, touch us, fill us. Let us know that our body is for you and that you are the one for our body. In Christ's name, amen.